You're listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with Dr. Gil Parat, and today I want to talk about acute mitral regurgitation. Tabor's Medical Dictionary defines mitral regurgitation as a backflow of blood from the left atrium resulting from imperfect closure of the mitral valve. This lecture focuses on what happens when that occurs acutely. The more common cases of chronic mitral regurgitation will be mentioned only as a comparison of how that chronic condition is so different from an acute event. I'm going to start with the Texas Heart Institute Journal in 2011, which published an excellent article titled, Management of Acute Regurgitation in Left-Sided Cardiac Valves. The first sentence of that article is, and I'm quoting them, the management of cardiac patients who have acute valvular regurgitation is largely anecdotal. No randomized trials have been conducted to guide practitioners. And though I am a fan of randomized trials, I must say I would not be a fan of being a patient in this specific situation in a trial. We know surgical repair works and that you usually die without it. A trial would seem unethical. The Texas Heart Institute Journal also summarizes the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association practice guidelines by saying, the data and guidelines emphasize the need for a high degree of clinical suspicion, the timely use of echocardiography, and, in most patients, definitive treatment with valve repair or replacement. It can be challenging to do a strictly audio summary without visual aids when discussing anatomy, but I think most of those listening to this will remember the anatomy I am discussing. If not, review it on the internet or an anatomy textbook so this will make more sense. And the anatomy I will be mentioning is the mitral valve, papillary muscle, and chordae tendinae. What exactly is a chordae tendinae? Perhaps one may guess from their name, they are cord-like tendons. They actually attach to the valve itself on one end of the cord, and the other end of the cord attaches to the papillary muscles. They help keep open the valve. They also keep the valve from prolapsing and regurgitating. So if the cord ruptures or the papillary muscle it attaches to ruptures, you now have a severe situation of sudden acute regurgitation. Why would a chordae tendine rupture? One reason is bad luck from a spontaneous event or what we medical folks prefer to term idiopathic. And the comedian Stephen Wright said, I busted a mirror and got seven years bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. So I guess if you get acute mitral regurgitation from an idiopathic vent, try and get the same lawyer Stephen Wright has. Sometimes there is a myxomatous degeneration in those who have connective tissue diseases like Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. You often think about the aorta in Marfan patients, but the mitral valve can be an issue as well. Infective endocarditis, obviously an important cause of acute mitral regurgitation. So moving on to papillary muscles, why do they rupture? First, remember these papillary muscles are basically muscle that is attached to the rest of the muscle inside the ventricle. So you have the left ventricle muscle attached to the papillary muscle that attaches to the cords that attaches to the mitral valve. 
The large coronary arteries provide small coronary arterial supply to the papillary muscle. If you kill some of that muscle in a myocardial infarction, that dead necrotic muscle can rupture and cause acute mitral regurgitation. I think it's important to note that if you have ischemia to these muscles and the muscle doesn't rupture but instead causes a scar or long-term dysfunction, it can cause chronic mitral regurgitation. That's one of the many reasons why your post-MI patients go on to develop chronic mitral regurgitation. Some say that happens in 20% of myocardial infarction patients, so a rather common issue. And once you have chronic mitral regurgitation, with time, you may be asymptomatic or alternatively, your left ventricle dilates and hypertrophies and then CHF and atrial fibrillation set in and life hands you lemons when you don't have the energy to make lemonade. Now let's take the situation where that papillary muscle totally ruptures and fast, which fortunately doesn't happen much, but that extremely severe mitral regurgitation that occurs from that typically can be fatal. More likely to happen is only part of the papillary muscle ruptures, providing plenty of distress, but partial ruptures provide more potential for survival. It's interesting that we've been recognizing this clinical issue for less than a century. The Annals of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery in 2011, Volume 17, has an interesting case report of acute mitral regurgitation that starts on page 81. Getting into the history of this condition, the article on page 83 states, the first clinically diagnosed case of papillary muscle rupture was reported in 1948. The era before surgical treatment, approximately 80% of patients with papillary muscle rupture died within the first 24 hours, and only 6% survived for two or more months. Now, plenty of other stuff can cause acute mitral regurgitation. As I mentioned, endocarditis or a sudden prosthetic valve malfunction. When thinking of the various causes of acute mitral regurgitation, there are organic and functional causes. I've up until this point talked about organic causes that result in true permanent disruption of the valve, like papillary muscle rupture or destruction from endocarditis. Those organic etiologies definitely require surgical repair. Functional causes are really important to distinguish since they sometimes reverse without surgical repair. For example, Takatsubo's cardiomyopathy, a lot of you know that as apical ballooning syndrome. Some of the public knows that as broken heart syndrome. It's an example of a functional cause of acute mitral regurgitation in certain cases. Any rapidly developing cardiomyopathy that dilates the left ventricle can cause a mitral valve to leak acutely, just as chronic cardiomyopathy can cause a valve to leak chronically. Peripartum cardiomyopathy is another classic example of an acute cardiomyopathy. If you medically treat those often temporary cardiomyopathies and they usually thankfully resolve, the valve regurgitation also resolves. There is a specific situation worth discussing now, which is cardiogenic shock in acute myocardial infarction with acute mitral regurgitation as a comorbidity. The philosopher Francis Herbert Bradley accurately said 
There are persons who, when they cease to shock us, cease to interest us. Indeed, it also can be said that a nerving medical condition known as shock interests every doctor and nurse, no matter how many times they've seen it. And I want to review the landmark shock trial published in the journal called Circulation in 2003. The unabbreviated title of the shock trial is called Should We Emergently Revascularize Occluded Coronaries in Cardiogenic Shock? We'll just call it the shock trial. For most doctors, the take-home point passed down in residencies and textbooks has been the very important indication for early revascularization of acute myocardial infarction patients in cardiogenic shock. If you want the patient to survive, you can't argue that the patient needs better hemodynamics before catheterization or the proverbial cooling off period that I remember so well from my residency days. I'm young, but the current graduates of residency and fellowships understand time is hard and in ischemia get the coronary arteries open, especially in the setting of cardiogenic shock. Much of that thinking came from the shock trial about a decade ago, but we also learn a lot about acute mitral regurgitation from the shock trial that sometimes is forgotten. We in particular relearned a fact from earlier studies that in the shock trial showed severe mitral regurgitation is bad in myocardial infarction. How bad is acute mitral regurgitation in an acute coronary syndrome? A little over half of your patients will die, 55% according to the shock trial data. I will quote the shock trial to embellish the point. Both short and long-term mortality appear to be associated with initial left ventricular systolic function and the severity of mitral regurgitation as assessed by echocardiography. These findings occurred regardless of treatment strategy. I should emphasize that in the shock trial, early revascularization definitely benefited those MI patients with acute mitral regurgitation. So it doesn't change treatment strategy to open those coronary arteries fast. That's what you want to do. That's the take-home point with the additional acknowledgement that we also need to understand that the degree of mitral gurge acts as a predictor of death. Now let's talk about symptoms and let's talk about the mechanisms of those symptoms. The deceased writer Irvin Cobb expounded that Middle age is when you begin to exchange your emotions for symptoms. So let's talk symptoms. First of all, let me say what acute mitral regurgitation symptoms are not typically similar to. Acute mitral regurgitation is not chronic mitral regurgitation. With chronic mitral regurgitation, you may not even have symptoms, which is why you pick it up on auscultation or on echocardiogram when you're looking for other stuff. A 1997 Mayo Clinic Proceedings article called Mitral Regurgitation explained it well that with chronic MR, symptoms can be absent or minimal despite severe regurgitation because of the adaptive remodeling of the left ventricle and atrium to the volume overload or the adaption of the patient to the disease. Now let's stay with the Mayo Clinic proceedings, but jump ahead more than a decade to a May 2010 article titled Valvular Heart Disease, in which they elucidate about acute mitral regurgitation symptoms, saying patients who develop acute severe MR 
present with symptomatic heart failure because their ventricles are ill-prepared to accept the sudden increase in volume load. However, if the patient survives the acute episode or has slowly progressive worsening of the MR, the left ventricle is able to develop compensatory changes. Good doctors can easily miss much regurgitation unless they are thinking about it. Patients are often misdiagnosed as ARDS or pneumonia or acute CHF decompensation. These are the cases where you need a stat echo if it is available to be done in red. Remember that chamber sizes of the atrium and ventricles may be normal because remodeling and hypertrophy and dilation haven't had time to occur in the acute setting. And so now I'll move on and talk a little bit about the physical exam. Let's talk about tachycardia, which can be present in lots of things causing sudden respiratory distress, as you know, just like pulmonary emboli or ARDS. So it isn't a real specific or necessarily helpful finding. However, it should be present in acute MR because the heart is trying to maintain forward output by increasing heart rate as well as increased systolic function to accommodate the increased blood volumes in the stressed chambers. Now let's say the patient is on a beta blocker because of myocardial infarction and then you get a papillary muscle rupture days or weeks later. You may therefore be suppressing the heart rate with medication, so always think about that. With acute mitral regurgitation, there's often an early systolic murmur. Now let's be real with each other. In this age of echocardiograms, most of us will still hear the systolic murmur at the apex and be able to tell it's mitral regurgitation, but very few are going to be able to distinguish early systolic versus late systolic versus holosystolic particularly in a patient with tachycardia. But if you can, more power to you. Just listen for the murmur over the mitral valve because that is a basic skill we all need to be able to do. There is another issue in regards to murmurs. Nearly every source explains that acute MR murmurs can range from very soft to loud. I have personally found that murmurs can change during exams over just a few hours because of the specific hemodynamics of the patient. It's challenging to nail the diagnosis of acute mitral regurgitation without any murmur, but there are times when no murmur is present. So maybe a few days after an acute myocardial infarction, if there is a sudden respiratory decompensation that you can't otherwise explain, you may be able to nail the diagnosis by clinical suspicion and getting a stat echocardiogram alone. But with no murmur, I must admit we often are also appropriately thinking about other things in the differential diagnosis while we are considering the acute mitral regurgitation. Now, I want to summarize and expand a little bit on treatment. Surgical intervention is the primary way you are going to address the problem. And whether that is mitral valve repair or replacement is left to the expertise of the surgeon. Again, there are some exceptions like functional mitral regurgitation. Postpartum and Takotsubu's cardiomyopathy usually improve with time and medical therapy. Another notable exception is acute MR from acute myocardial infarction, often causing shock and often can be treated just with revascularization. And again, that goes back to the shock trial I already mentioned. Now, the opposite can be true of acute mitral regurgitation 
not associated with acute myocardial infarction, such as a chordae rupture or endocarditis, in which cases you may need to skip a heart catheterization. We are so used to getting a heart cath before valve surgery for stable patients, but acute valve disease is different from planning for replacement of chronically diseased valves. To emphasize that point, the journal Circulation published a nice review of valvular heart disease that starts on page 3232. I will quote an important section of that article, Cardiac catheterization is generally not indicated in the preoperative assessment of patients with acute regurgitation. The exception is patients with acute coronary syndromes complicated by acute mitral regurgitation for whom revascularization alone may improve regurgitation or for whom both revascularization and mitral valve surgery are needed. For those patients without ischemia as a potential underlying mechanism of regurgitation, such as those with mitral regurgitation due to cortal rupture or aortic regurgitation, the time to obtain a cardiac catheterization and the contrast may be poorly tolerated. So that's the end of the quote, which, as I said, comes from the journal circulation, but I think I forgot to mention that the date is 2009 of that publication. Intraortic bloom pumps are sometimes needed in acute MR. While you are awaiting all these invasive measures, or even while waiting for an echocardiogram or a consultant to arrive, you will be undertaking the standard acute congestive heart failure treatments like Lasix to improve pulmonary edema if blood pressure is not too low. If you have a normotensive patient, somebody not in shock, special mention needs to be made of utilizing nitroprusside. I will directly quote from the guidelines to emphasize this important point. So this comes from the ACC or AHA guidelines as published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, September 23rd, 2008. And they say this, the goal of non-surgical therapy is to diminish the amount of mitral regurgitation in turn increasing forward output and reducing pulmonary congestion. In the normotensive patient, administration of nitroprusside may accomplish all three goals. Nitroprusside increases forward output not only by preferentially increasing aortic flow, but also by partially restoring mitral valve competence as left ventricle size diminishes. And that's the end of the quote. But the guidelines also mention that you can consider nitroprusside in a hypotensive patient if you combine it with an inotropic drug like dobutamine. Finally, most of you have noticed I haven't mentioned acute aortic valve regurgitation, which is often a bigger emergency than acute mitral regurgitation. I think the topic of acute mitral regurgitation is big and challenging enough that I didn't want to make things too complex. Anton Chekhov said, All of life and human relations have become so incomprehensibly complex that when you think about it, it becomes terrifying and your heart stands still. And of course, the whole point of this talk is to prevent still hearts. So until a later time, I hope you learned some valuable information You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Peratt, signing off.